Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Osman. Here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yavamot, daf Lamed Chet, page 38. Well, we have a new Mishnah that I'm going to get to, um, but just to sort of summarize what's going on before, there's a very lengthy discussion that takes place about all these cases of questionable inheritance. Um, it started on the previous daf, on daf Lamed Zion, um, and uh, they get actually up to about eight cases of this. Uh, and it's essentially, you know, the cases are sort of like, you know, uh, there's, you know, this this suffolk person and somebody else, and they have to figure out exactly how an estate or how an inheritance is going to work. So I just pay attention to it because it's an interesting piece of halacha that I think, uh, you know, today most people are very unaware of. Um, but there are people who do try to fi- to follow the halachot around, uh, you know, inheritance but like inheritance when they're talking here had to do with like sort of property and the land and the lands in Israel it's not the way we think of setting up like estates and trusts anymore so I I just want to make that clear it's a little bit different than what we think of as will and inheritances Um, but you know very interesting set of cases that they go through here Um, and also like just as you know sort of a little bit of a bizarre tangent although I think it does make because the whole concept of Yibum is, you know, to sort of get this inheritor in the dead brother's name. Um, and uh, so it sort of makes sense to get into that here. Um, okay, so what now we get to a new Mishnah, which is also interesting because it actually appears in Paraklet in the eighth ch- chapter of Ketubot. Um, and it's a whole case about a woman who's waiting for the Avan. So we're going to learn this, uh, you know, in a little while again. Uh, in Dafyomi. Okay. So one is awaiting the Yavam, right? And inherits property from her father. Okay. So she is, uh, you know, she's about, you know, she's going, she's supposed to be getting married uh, or, you know, you know, to have this relationship with the uh, Yavam and, um, but she's not yet his wife and she inherits property um, from her, uh, from her father. Okay, Modin Beit Shammai Ubeit Hillel Shemocher Vinotenet Bekayim. So Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel agree that she can sell or give away or basically do whatever she wants with this, you know, with this property. Because the idea is, is the question is, is 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 she acting as the wife of the Avam if she were to sell this property? In other words, we know she's going to enter this relationship with the Avam. But until that relationship actually starts, right, um, you know, is she considered to be, uh, you know, more of like an Arusa, somebody who's sort of in that in-between phase, right, that first step of Nisuin, of, of full Kedushim, right? It's Arusin and then Nisuin. Um, and so is she allowed to do anything? And so the Mishnah here is basically presenting a case where Beit Chame and both Beit Hillel would agree, right, that she's not really the Yavam's... Uh, uh, oh, wait, I need to, I made a mistake here. I'm starting again. Sorry. Okay. So annoying. Okay, so now let me get to this next Mishnah. And what's interesting about this Mishnah is it actually par- appears in Paraklet of Ketubot. Um, so we will see it again. And this is a case about a woman who's waiting to do Yibo, right? She's waiting to enter into this relationship with her Yavam. So if somebody's waiting for the Yavam, so in other words, they've agreed 
they're going to enter this Hebrew relationship. And this woman inherits property from her father. So technically what the issue here is, is right. She gets this property. She's not married yet. So it's not property that would go to the Yavam yet. Modim Beit Shammai Beit Hillel, Shemocher Benotenet Bekayam. Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel both agree that essentially it's her property. She can sell it. She can give it away. And whatever she does with it, that transfer stands. Meta, let's say we say she dies while awaiting her Yavam. Maya said Bekitubata, right? What do they do with her Ketubah? Uva Nechasim HaNechasim V'yotzin Ima. And the properties that entered and left with her, right? So the question here is basically, what they're really asking is, what is the status of the woman who's waiting Yibun? Is she regarded basically as the Avam's wife as it comes to some of these property laws, right? So in other words, is the Zika bond, right? This bond that we've talked about before, is it strong enough to say uh, that, you know, they're basically, there's some kind of... Uh, bond there and um you know and and basically he would be you know get her would get her property right so in that way he would basically be like her full-fledged husband and is her sole heir or is the question that he's not really like her husband in which case her paternal family right her father's family let's say if she has no children right all that property should go back to them and that's sort of essentially what the question is here, right? What does it mean to be waiting for Yibam? And is that Zikab bond great enough that somehow the Yavam has some property rights, even though they have not actually completed being married yet, right? So here we're going to see a machlokas. So the husband's heirs divide it with the father's heirs. So in other words, if she does not have children, you're going to split the property. The Yavam will get some, and some of it will go back to her family. The properties remain with whoever possesses them. The Ketubah is in the possession of the, of the husband, right? Because he gave that to her, right? But the properties that came in with her, right, and leave with her, those basically would go back to her uh, to her father. Kinasa, uh, right? If the Yavam then marries the Yavama, right? Then she's considered to be his regular wife in all, you know, in all manners. Except that the Ketubah obligation actually rests upon her, the first husband's estate. So this is also uh, very interesting. This will get explained later on in the Gemara. So we'll, we won't talk about this right now. But in other words, there's still a financial obligation uh, from the first husband's family, because remember this child, uh, or sort of the purpose of this Yibum is to sort of maintain the father's name, the father's, the sorry, the deceased uh, brother who this child will be sort of in the name of. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So again, this is an interesting mission that I think on the surface, seems very simplistic, but actually deals with very, you know, issues about the Zika, right? Yesh Zika or Ein Zika, right? How strong is that bond between the Avam and Yavama? And this is a great case to explore it, right? What does it mean if in that in-between stage, she inherits property or she herself dies? How does that affect that relationship between the Avam and Yavama? 
Um, and, uh, you know, we see this, you know, the first case, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel agree, although we'll see later on that there will be a machlokas over, let's say they did erosine with each other, like they sort of did part, part of the marriage uh, component. Would that impact that? Um, and, you know, and the second piece of what do you do with the property if she were to die? Um, and Beit Shammai sort of like, yeah, you're going to split it 50-50. And Beit Hill is like, no, whatever's in who's ever property, whatever is who's ever domain, that's where it's going to stay. But again, I think this further unpacks for us, what does it mean to have this sort of in-between? Because remember also, from what we just previously learned, you have to have this in-between phase, right? You have to wait this 90 days. So I think these types of questions actually probably did come up. I think that it's one of those areas of law, let's say, in any culture, really, that nobody wants to think about until they're in it. I've said this kind of thing before. And the fact that halacha, right, especially here we are, you know, standing before Pesach, and we think of, so often we think of halacha as about ritual and so on, you know, and here is, you know, really the nitty gritty of of inheritance laws. And I, I understand it makes perfect sense in the context of Yibum, but, you know, I I, I feel like this is, there's so much law and I do think probably in any system that is dedicated to this kind of issue because there's so many potential factors and, and, you know, you want to make sure that nobody's fighting too much, let's say, right. So then the law has to account for as many cases as it can. And this is just the very tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. I, I don't, I love this Mishnah. I thought it was a great case. I think it's great. Yeah. I'm just saying like the, oh my goodness, right. The whole issue of Yibum and who marries whom, like has then, then what happens the next year, you know, like not literally the next year, right? Like what happens next? There's, there's a lot of potential complications here because of, and that's why we've got all this law, you know, whatever. Okay. I don't need to believe the point. I want to move on to, I'm a bet as seems to have become my won't maybe tomorrow I'll take Amadal if you're Dana. Um, we have here, I want to, there's a large machloket between Behil and Bechamai. Large meaning it covers a lot of ground. A lot of the daf is de- dedicated to this. I want to hone in on a very small piece of it um, or or the implications of it. We have here, a bre- um, the Gemara cites Bechamai's opinion in a Mishnah. The Mishnah is in Masachet Sotah, um, Daf Kafdalad, page 24. We will get to Masachet Sotah in due time. Please, God, we have here, So what happens? We've got a case where Sota, right, is a case of a um, suspected adultery where seclusion has been observed. Seclusion between, again, between a married woman and a man who is not her husband, right? And and if you want to make the case really technical, you know, they've had a warning already not to do this because that's the, you need warning to be able to exact a punishment. So fine, so they have warning, and they're suspected of committing adultery. And now the question is, you want to establish, is she guilty or is she innocent? And this is, you know, it's like the Lahavdil, but I always think of the witches of Salem, right? Or or the idea that, you know, a witch will, an innocent person will sink and a guilty person will float. So in this case, it's not quite like that. But again, it's like this trial by water. But specifically in this case, they bring her to the Beit HaMikdash and they give her these bitter waters to drink. And then... The, this is all, you know, pre- preliminary information. It's really in the Chumash, and it's discussed in Masachat Sotah and elsewhere, right? This idea that if she is guilty, 
then it's pretty gruesome. Her stomach pretty much explodes. And if she is innocent, then she goes home to her husband. And it also suggests then that whatever marital strife is now resolved because it's, you know, her name is cleared and everything like that. And then there's this really nice parallel, which is she's supposed to then conceive and her belly will expand in that way instead. Um, so the I, the issue here is, you know, what happens then to a woman who is accused of being a Sota and she has to then go to the Beit HaMikdash to drink from the bitter water and what happens what happens to such a woman if her husband dies before she ever even drinks right now even if she's guilty but like he's not there anymore right according to Beit Shammai she should collect the money from the Ketubah meaning any such woman it's in plural here and she does not drink the water to determine you know nobody needs to know now if she was guilty or innocent Beit Shammai so Beit Hill says either they drink and if they make it through, right, if they are determined to be innocent, then they can get the ketubah or do not drink, but do not collect the ketubah. So it's a really different approach between Beit Hill and Beit Shama here in terms of the, I, I almost want to say the question of truth, right? Like, do you need to know whether this woman committed adultery or not? And if she did commit adultery, then presumably she's going to end up you know, dead at the water because of these bitter waters. And if she didn't, um, then by all means, she should collect the tuba according to Beit Hillel. And if she's not going to drink, then at the very least, because of the shadow of suspicion over her head, she can't collect the tuba. Whereas Beit Shammai says, no, like she, they collect the money, they get the tuba, and they don't drink, meaning he's no longer there. So this is this whole accusation thing is fundamentally kind of let go, right? It's, it's, um, it's no longer relevant. So now the Gemara wants to ask on this, of course, right? Did Beit Hill really mean this? Oh, Shotot, meaning either she's going to drink or she's going to get the, or either she's going to drink and if she survives, she'll get the ketubah or she doesn't drink it, she doesn't get the tuba. And the Gemara then brings the verse, which is from Bamidbar, which is the whole story of Sota in the Torah. Meaning the whole ceremony of the Sota is that the husband brings the wife to court, right? It's again, suggestive of marital strife that goes beyond simple. It's not like a technical accusation of adultery. There's like, he has to be willing to bring her to this trial, which might end up killing her if in fact she was guilty. And not everybody, you know, was necessarily willing to do so, right? So, but the point here is of the Gemara is, let's read that verse and 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 be medayic in it. We're going to be very careful to make the all of the technical terms of the verse come to life. Namely, if the husband is not there to bring his wife to the Beit HaMikdash to be tested, then it's like saying... You can't do this at all. There's no husband to do it. So therefore, the whole thing falls down. And that makes sense, according to Beit Shama, right? There's no husband. So rather, says the Gemara, let's understand Beit Hillel as follows, that the only way that somebody who is a sota, who's accused of adultery, etc., is able to get her ketubah is if she would then drink the, the water and prove her innocence. Right? If she proves that she's innocent by virtue of the ceremony, then she should get her tuba. But since she can't do that because her husband is not there to bring her to the ceremony, so then she's not going to drink and she cannot get her tuba. So uh, the back comes and kind of rewrites Bechanai to remove the, 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 do, the two possibilities there to just be just the one possibility. And then um, 
Rabbah goes on to explain, like, here we've got a situation, the Safeku, which kind of goes back to what's previously on the daf, Safek Zanai, Safek Lozanai, right? The question is, was there um, infidelity in this situation or not? And it's not clear. Right, the moment you've got this uncertainty, and it's going to take you out from the certainty. This is that's this expression, right? Like, um, you know, can whether whether the uncertainty comes to undermine the definite claim. What's a definite claim? So now the Gemara brings us back to the discussion of the heirs, right? And your Dana, this was your piece, right? That if she has this the uncertainty over whether she committed adultery, in which case you have a question over the heirs, then is that undermining the claim of the the husband's heirs that they could come forward? And the conclusion is that the moment that, well, again, it's really on the opinion of Bechamai, that the moment there's this, like, um, this uh, bill of collection, so to speak, already waiting, that it once it's there, it's as if it's collected, meaning carry on, go ahead. Um, you know, she should in the the money should be uh, should go to her to the children, whatever. That that's the reason that she's able to collect the ketuba according to Bechamai, meaning the whole piece of the heirs already kind of like being in the system to get that funding. Nah, funding is not the right word. The inheritance. So that's part of that leads to the logical conclusion that she too can get her ketubah, even though there's no husband to to bring her to drink or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know. Can I say something? I found you almost <laughs> fun today. <laughs> <laughs> Is this that like an admission? I like. I don't know. Uh, I, like I know. Stop. You do it took me to Lam and Chet, but it, you know what I mean? But I, I don't know. That's all. <laughs> I'm laughing. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Arvanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff. And maybe you've almost got a redeem today for you on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.